Good afternoon. Good to be here. Man, it's hot, right? Or is it just me? <laughs> uh, open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 9. But I wanted to tell you guys something I was reading about uh, this week as I prepared. So I was reading a news article. I got sidetracked like I always do. And <clears throat> I saw that the month of January is the month where all the allergies across the United States amongst Christians are in the most active swing. How somebody figured that out, I don't know. So they say it's because all the dust particles in the house and people are, you know, it's, it's New Year's resolution time and blah, 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 blah. This, this sounds pretty ridiculous, right? That Christians would suffer from allergies the most because of dust in their house. I made that up. That was a story that Robert fabricated to put out a point that in January, the first two weeks of January, I promise you more Bibles in this country get read than at any other time of the year. The first two weeks of January. Why do I say two weeks? Because everybody, raise your hand if you've heard the statement, it takes seven days to make or break a habit. Right? So everybody in their mind says, well, if it takes seven days, I'm going to go 14 days because that'll ensure that I do this thing. And for us, it's reading scripture, right? What's the first thing you thought of as a Christian this year as the New Year's approached? I know what the first thing I thought of was, man, I did not read enough scripture last year. And y'all, I'm in the scriptures every day. And that's not to toot my own horn because I'm in it every day for the wrong reasons. I'm in it to get the answers for a test. I'm in it to help somebody that I'm counseling. I'm in it to gain some kind of knowledge, but I'm not in it every day to grow and cultivate a relationship with the Lord. I, I am guilty of that. Um, and, and it was funny because, you know, Lewis today in his sermon, he mentioned, well, I just don't like to read. And then he said, well, that's not the truth. The truth is you just don't want to hear what God has to say. I wanted to get up, walk out of the thing and just go home and cry about it because that's the truth. Y'all, that is the truth. So before we can have a New Year's resolution that says, I'm going to read the Bible more, I'm going to put my mind to studying God's Word more, we have to understand what we truly have. So today's message, I would like to call it Valuing God's Word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. This is what it says. Now these are the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land where ye go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy son, and thy son's son, and all the days of thy life, and all, I'm sorry, and that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers has promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children and shalt talk to them. I'm sorry, talk of them when thou shalt sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest down and when thy, thou risest up and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand 
and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. So I want to start out kind of from the backside of this passage, and I want to tell you that, uh, again, this isn't to sound pretentious or pious, or uh, I'm definitely not super cool or special, but I did have a chance to go to Israel. When I went there, these people take this passage of Scripture extremely, extremely serious, okay? Um, in verse 8, it says, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontless between thine eyes. When I went to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem at the temple, and I was watching the men and women, they separate, men on the left-hand side, women on the right-hand side, and as they would pray, they would wane. It's called waning. And they would place one foot behind them and one foot in front of them, and they would bob like this. And this is to signify a flame on a candle moving. And they would recite Scripture from memory. Brothers and sisters, the men... Memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Raise your hand if you have any any passages from Leviticus put to memory. That's what I thought, because I don't either. Because Leviticus isn't the first place that I go. When I have a counselee sit down and he's got an issue, I don't say, let's go to Leviticus, because probably not going to find the answer there, right? And that's not to say that it's not important, but these individuals have the entire Pentateuch memorized. And then not only do they do that, but they take these leather straps and they wrap them around their wrists so tight that, I mean, it is, the skin is almost overlapping the leather. Okay? And they've got it in their hands and they've got their hand and they're waning. And then in between their eyes, as it says in the scriptures, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, they have a leather strap right here around their head and a box on their head. It's called a phylactery. And in this phylactery is scriptures. That way, if you're in Jerusalem ever, you will see that the people walk around with their heads down. But the men have a phylactery and they're reading scripture as they walk. They take these things very seriously. This passage to them is life. Am I telling you that we should be like the Jewish people who don't believe in the Messiah and the risen Christ and that we should be pious and holy by putting a box of scripture on our heads and abusing our skin with a leather strap and going at a wall and waning to be righteous? No. But what I'm saying is God's word is to be valued. God's word is to be supreme in our life. It's not a break in case of emergency. It's not, well, I don't have any money right now. What does the scripture say about getting rich? It's not, My marriage is on the rocks. Where does it say, how do I be a good husband? And then you do it for two or three days and then your life goes back to normal and the dust settles and so you put your book back on the shelf. The reason why I made that stupid story about the dust in Christian homes is because these Bibles that we so, that we supposedly so love are sitting on our shelves collecting dust, inches and inches of dust in some Christian homes. And when people go to pick it up on January 1st today and they dust it off and they throw all the dust in their house, I could just imagine everybody's allergies just being berserk. I know mine would be. And I don't even read my Bible every day like I want to, but it's not covered in dust. And I'm not even saying that that's the case here in our church. But what I'm saying is for us to make like an effort at God's word, we have to value God's word. And for us to value God's word, we have to do three things. We need to identify the obstructions to God's word. 
We need to observe God's Word and we need to obey God's Word. Before we do anything, and maybe this is just me because I was in the military, I don't know, maybe other men and women take this approach to something that they do in life, I always identify the things that are going to hinder me from doing it. So what are the obstructions to God's Word? And some of these won't be applicable to us as, as believers and people who actually put our thought and our mind and our efforts into reading God's word. But these are things that I hear and that I, when I, as I was doing the research, this is what come across. We don't read anymore. People don't read anymore. They don't read scripture. They do what he said. They put it in their car, they plug it in, they push play and they drive. And when they get where they're going in an hour, they have listened to the book of Genesis And if you were to ask them, well, what did you just listen to? They would say, well, God created the earth and then Adam and Eve sinned and then Noah's Ark. And then maybe they would get to the Tower of Babel and then it would be a bunch of intermittent thoughts or whatever. And the reason why I say that is, is how many people of you have been driving the same route to work every day for 10 years? And finally, one day you're driving by and you're like, there's a Walmart on this street? I've done that a hundred times. I do it all the time, actually. Matter of fact, I did it over by my house. I was driving and I looked over the side and I said, man, my neighbor has a pond too. And it's been there for three years that I've been here. We don't pay attention when we drive. We go on autopilot and we just think about the day or we think about our issues or we do our thing and then we continue to go. And so when I say we don't read anymore, I'm talking about pulling up a chair at the table, putting your scriptures in front of you and reading your scriptures. Number two, we're too busy to sit and devote ourselves to one thing for that long. Why? Because we have these things. Man, I want to get something from Amazon. Boop, boop, boop. Well, you can get this here in 12 hours. And a drone comes over and drops it off in your yard. Maybe not here in Hillbilly, Mississippi, but in California, people are getting things delivered by drones and stuff, okay? And so we have everything at the press of a button or that fast. And so we don't want to take the time to sit and be still and listen and study. And here's one that I found to be extremely condemning sometimes for even myself and for Christians as a whole because I, I talk to a lot of Christians My truth is the only truth. I don't need to hear what God says. I don't want what God says because what I say is ultimately better than what He could say. So I'll do things my way. We call that subjectivity, right? But the Bible teaches that there's a value in objective truth. Go to Hebrews 4.12. There is a value to objective truth. And here's the value, and you're going to think, you're going to ask me, well, Robert, what are you talking about that that is valuable? And I'll walk us through it. Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There's value in objective truth because God's word is objective truth and it will bust your heart open and it will reveal what is inside and you will have to do something with it. It will confront you. You're either doing it or you either need to work on doing it. And so there's value in that. 
Think about a God who he talked about the values and attributes of God that are so important and we could argue all day in and out about which one, which one. But God loves us so much that he left us an instruction manual. How many men here, and I say men because we are always guilty of this if it does happen. How many men here try to build stuff that they get from the store without the instruction manual? It's like, man, I don't need this instruction manual to tell me how to put together a bookcase. And you just start building it. Next thing you know, you've got extra pieces. And you're like, man, isn't this great? Ikea is so awesome. They left me extra pieces. They didn't leave you extra pieces. You didn't put it together the right way. (laughs) Now when your wife puts books on it and it's leaning sideways and she wants to know why, and you tell her that's okay, it comes like that. Why do I say that? Why would we try to put ourselves together as believers without reading the instruction manual first? How would we know how to love one another? How would we know how to carry one another's burdens? How would we know how to obey the Lord, fear the Lord? How would we know how to get over anxieties or depressions or sufferings without reading God's word and him telling us how to do it? If you're a believer, this book has the answers to everything that you could possibly face in life. And I would gladly, and I'm not trying to say this to to be an argumentative guy, I would just gladly Accept the challenge of let's try to find something that you think might not be in here. I'm that positive. I'm a hundred percent positive that the answers to everything in life are in here. I think Lewis hit it on the head though. It's not black and white. I'm not going to find in here that says, Hey, Chase, when you graduate high school, here's the job that you should do. But we can be discerning. We can be wise. We can be prudent in our actions. And therefore we can do whatever it is we're going to do to the glory of God. We don't want to live by rules. They dampen our freedoms. The Bible isn't relevant for today. It's outdated. And here's here's an interesting one. We want to fight for our belief in the Bible, right? We want to fight for our belief. Just like that guy that Lewis was talking about today in his sermon, that all these religious liberties are getting taken from us, and we want to stand up for them, and we want to fight for them. But we don't want to live by the Bible. We don't want to be doers of the word. We just want to be protectors of the word. We want to pull out the sword of heroism and wield it and act like we're going to do something for God because we think God needs us to stand up for him and his word. And I don't think that's true. Matter of fact, I'm going to take the word think out. I'm going to put back in. No, I know that's not true. God's word defends God's word. People who do things and then do the opposite, people would say, oh, that's a hypocrite. I don't think so. I think we all are guilty of that from time to time. I think that sometimes we say one thing and we do another thing, and and not that that's not wrong. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is I don't think that that's a true definition of a, a, a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who tells somebody to do something, and they have no intentions at all to do those things. The Bible calls those people Pharisees. And so in Matthew 5.20, we see a pretty convicting piece of scripture from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, talking to the people. And in the the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus is really laying out heart. You have to have heart. You can't just put checks in the box for reading scriptures and going to church and loving your neighbor begrudgingly and all these things without having the right heart intention and right heart attitude. 
This is what it says in verse uh, Matthew 5.20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Man, I want to fight for God's word. And I want to, I want to be a social justice warrior. And I want to, I want to yell because the Republicans or the Democrats are taking away our, our religious freedoms and our, our, our liberties and our, our rights. But I don't care about living by those very rights that I would fight for. So those are some obstructions to God's word. You don't have time. It's not relevant for today. I don't want to hear it. I don't have the, the brain capacity. I just want to fight for it, but I don't want to live by it. So number two, in verses one through three, we see that we are to observe God's word. And this is what verses one through three say again. Now, these are the commandments, the statutes and the judgments, which the Lord your God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land, whether you go to possess it, that thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command thee, thou and thy sons and thy son's son, all the days of thy life, that, they, that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe to do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey." So in English, if we were to look up the word observe, this is what we would see. We would see that it means to notice or to perceive something. But as I was reading through this, I got into one of those really smart guy dictionaries, the dictionaries that people who go to college use. And this is what it said. Notice or perceive something and register it as being significant. When we observe God's word, do we just see it and know it exists and believe in it because it's from God? Or do we register it as being significant? In Hebrew, as Moses is penning these words, they would have understood it a different way. If you look up the word observe uh, in, in the Hebrew, you'll see three words that signify what they're doing when they observe it. They are, number one, keeping God's word. Psalm 119.34. 119.34 says, Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Lord, give me something to know you better by. Give me something to understand who you are and what you are and what you want from me, and I will observe it. I will keep it in my heart and I will live by it. And then number two, they would guard it. Second Timothy 1, 12 through 14. Second Timothy 12, 1 through 14. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. 
Hold fast the form of sound words. Guard the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep or guard by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. And then one more from 1 Timothy 6.20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. O Timothy, keep. That's O Timothy, guard that which is committed to thy trust. We have been given the word of God and we are to guard it with our everything that we have, with our thoughts, with our actions, with our hearts, with our minds. We're to keep it safe. We're to protect it. We are to stand for it. Notice I didn't say stand up for it to fight for it because it is going to go away if we don't protect, you know, if we don't defend it like a, some kind of trial lawyer. No, stand for it. That's why Christians say abortion is bad because we believe that God values life and that everything from heartbeat or from conception until death is created in the image of God. And so we would go and we would stand for life in unborn children. That's standing for the word. When I was in the military, we used to stand guard in Afghanistan, and that would uh, be a tower up on some heavy-duty sand-filled barriers with a guard tower on top, and we would have a 360-degree degree view of everything around us and we would be in a triangle so I would have this sector there would be a guy over here with this sector and there'd be a guy over here with this sector and if all of us can see 360 degrees what's happening there's overlap I can see what he can see he can see what I can see so on and so forth so we're, we're we got everything covered to guard that base from the Taliban coming in it requires us to be vigilant It requires us to be observant. It requires us to be disciplined. It requires us to communicate back and forth with one another. If you don't do that, you can't guard correctly and you will get overran. And so what does that look like in the lives of a believer? If you aren't guarding God's word in your own personal life, you will get swept away by these stupid doctrines, these stupid soft beliefs that people put out there. I'll give you a perfect example. I was watching college football, just like every good American man should have been yesterday. We will not talk about the results of some of the games because that is a a depression for me. But a commercial came on and it said, he gets us. That was the big letters. He gets us. I said, who gets us? And then it Jesus gets us. And I was like, what? On TV, you know, these commercials about Jesus and, and it's this commercial with this sad music and this, if Jesus was getting socially, um, persecuted because he was different, you know, what would he do? Because he understands us. He, you know, and they were painting this picture of Jesus only as a human. As if Jesus knew what it was like to be persecuted for being a homosexual or being transgender or being black or being white or being anything 
that we are, that we all feel that we're being persecuted for. It didn't talk about his divinity. It didn't talk about him being the savior of the world. It didn't talk about him sacrificing himself on the cross for the will of the father, for the good of the people. No, it was a horrible example of Jesus as a human only so that he could make you feel better about yourself. If you want to be gay, it's okay because Jesus gets it. If you want to be black, he gets it. If you want to be white, he gets it. If you want to do whatever you want to do, he gets it. He knows why. And I was like, man, this is crazy. I Google this thing. I look it up. This organization, whoever they are, and and brothers and sisters, I, I'm, I'm kind of bashing this, but I, I do want to say that I think that these people's intention were good. I think they're trying to erase some of the damages that Christians have done to themselves. And if you think Christians, if you don't think we've damaged our witness for Christ, you are sadly mistaken because we have. But the, the purpose of this, of this ad was to get people to relate to the, to the human Jesus and completely forget to mention his deity and him being the son of God and the Messiah and the savior. And so that's what happens when we don't guard. We get taken away by that. Because at first, I'm going to rewind the story a little bit. At first, I was like, man, how cool is it that there's a Jesus commercial in the midst of college football? And then the music comes on. And I'm a sucker for some sad music, y'all. I'll tell you a secret about Robert Kale. I'm a very emotional person. I like to cry. I like love music or love movies. I love love. That's just how it is. And so I heard it. And I was like, man, this is so nice. And then I was like, wait a minute. Jesus gets us because and just the message that they were portraying about the savior just really bothered me and so i had to quickly pull back out of the emotional roller coaster and the last one that they would have understood this of, of, of observing to mean is they would give heed in revelation 1 3 we see that it says blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. They would heed it. They would listen to it. They would do it. They wouldn't just read it and forget it and walk away from it. They would keep it in their heart. They would guard it with all that they had and they would do it. And so number two in verses four through nine we see that we are to obey God's word. And verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Who knows what that verse is? Who, who can shout that out? Does anybody? That's the Shema, right? It's a prayer that Israel does. And if you were to go to Israel, and it says down you know, in verse 9, write them upon the post of thy house. Well, they've got a little piece of metal on the post of their house on the right-hand side, and they nail it. Everybody has it. Even every hotel room has it. And it's the Shema. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. They took it seriously and literally. You go to the bathroom, the Shema's on the post. Going into the bathroom. You go to the Burger King, the Shema's on the post. You go into the barn, the Shema is on the post. And it goes on and it says, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them gently, or sorry, diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest, in thine house and when thou walkest by the way and when thou liest upon 
or when thou liest down and when thy, thou risest up. Man, the King James is beating me up today, guys. So, if we were to look up the word obey like we did earlier, I'm not, I hope today, guys, I'm not trying to just explain this text to you and exegete it. I think we all get the picture here that we're supposed to be in God's word. And this text alone, just reading it out loud tells you that it is valuable and that we should value God's word. What I want to do is I want to paint a picture for you to take it home and so that we can apply it to our lives so that we don't have to be the Christians that knock the dust off of our Bibles on January 1st and then on January 15th it starts collecting it again because the cycle has reached its maximum uh, operating capacity and now we're, we're full and we can't do it anymore. We burned out. In English, the word obey means comply with the command direction or request of a person or a law. Simply put, submit to the authority of God. Obedience to God is a call to action and it requires us as believers to do something with what we have been given. So what have we been given and what are we supposed to do? We've been given the word of God and here's what we need to do. And this is all from the passage. We need to hear the word of God. We need to hear the word of God when we read it. We need to hear the word of God on Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon and Wednesday night. We need to hear the word of God in our homes, fathers teaching our children, wives, husbands reading and praying together. We need to hide the word in our hearts. We need to hide the word in our hearts. We need to read it. We need to meditate on it. We need to memorize it. We need to put it in our hearts so that we can act upon it. Lewis mentioned today that if we were going to be a vessel of honor or dishonor, that he went to Matthew 6 and he said, wherever our heart is, there also is our treasure, right? Or our treasure leads to our heart. Well, that's the truth. And if, if God's word's not hidden in our heart, it will show because we won't live according to God's word. We need to teach the word to our families. And we need to talk about the word in our families' lives daily, in our own lives daily. How many of you talk to your children every day about the Word of God, even if it's just at dinner? Because I understand if you've got a five and a six-year-old, you're not going to sit down and do an in-depth Bible study because they're going to get antsy and want to move around and you're going to get upset and you're going to get defeated and then you're going to quit doing it because that's what Satan wants. But while you're eating dinner, if you were to say... David, tell me an attribute of God. And he was to say, well, God is love. You could say, yes. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you know God is love? And you could have a gospel-centered conversation with a five-year-old, a 15-year-old, whatever. Sometimes I just quiz Jocelyn and say, hey, Jocelyn, what is this? And we just start going through it. If she doesn't get it, we just walk through it. And then she gets it. And then I ask her a few days down the road, and then she gets it. And then we just keep going from there. And that's not even me being good at it because that's, that's where I lack is talking to my kid about the Word of God every day. We need to bind the Word of God to our lives. Not only do we need to hide it in our heart, but we need to attach it to us somehow. It's too easy, and this is, this is kind of metaphorically, but it's too easy to carry our phone around and say, I have God's Word with me because if I'm doing something, I can just pull it up on my phone and do whatever. But what else is on your phone? Instagram and Facebook and Snapchat and Google Talk and Snip Snap and this, that and who's what and 
I don't even know what it all is. But it's all there. And the minute you're reading Scripture, in the beginning, God created the notice. The Jets are trading. Well, no, i got to get there and see what's going on in the sports world. Or so-and-so commented on your post, and then you go read it, and you don't like the way they commented on it, so now you're all discombobulated. We need to bind it to our lives. So I used to challenge the guys in my Bible study. You know, I wouldn't leave, I wouldn't leave my base camp in Afghanistan without my weapon. I would leave with two weapons. I would leave with a service pistol and I would leave with my service rifle. And there is no way I was going to walk out into cowboy and Indian country without either one of those two things. And so if, if in Ephesians chapter six, Paul calls the word the sword, I would say that this book is our weapon. And so the minute you leave your home, you're going into combat territory. And when I say combat territory, what do I mean by that? Spiritual warfare is real, brothers and sisters. And if you don't believe that, you are mistaken. You are in spiritual warfare every single day. Do you take your Bible with you where you go? Do you take it into the doctor's office where you know you get there 15 minutes early with hopes that they'll call you back early, but in actuality, you're going to be an hour late and you sit in that waiting room for an hour thumbing through YouTube, TikTok, and whatever else is on your phone, playing a game and uh, what is it, Candy Crush and Bubble This and, right? That's what we do when we could break out our Bible and we could do a Bible reading and we could think about what it's saying in our lives. So brothers and sisters, we see we need to identify the obstructions to us being connected to God's word. We need to observe God's word and we need to obey God's word. And so I want to I want to close with an example uh, passage. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 14 to 20. And this is what it says, Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt possess it and shalt dwell therein and shalt say, I will set a king over me like as all the nations that are about me. Thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses for as much the Lord hath said unto him, he shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that shall he, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is set, sorry, which is before the priests and the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read therein all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God to keep all the words of his law and these statutes to do them that his heart may I'm sorry, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. The, the subheading in this passage is called Guidelines for the King of Israel. 
And we see some things in there, right? We see that if he was to read this, he would know exactly what he shouldn't do as a king, right? He would observe that I'm not allowed to collect a bunch of riches to myself. I'm not allowed to have a bunch of wives. I'm not allowed to um, think of myself higher than other people. And then we would see that he would have a choice to obey. And what's the first thing in here that he should be doing outside of that personal conduct? In verse 18, it says, And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law. That means that that king would take the first five books of the Bible and he would write them down in another book. That's why there's so many copies of this. And he would read it. He would have it with him. It shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to what? Fear the Lord his God. So the two takeaways from us observing and obeying God's law is that we would fear him and that we would love him. And we can only do that if we know him. And we can only know him if we study him. We can only study him if we read about him and his word and we apply it into our lives and we hide it in our hearts and we bind it to ourselves and we teach it to our children. Brothers and sisters, please, please don't be New Year's Christians with your Bible. Don't be 14 day Bible readers this year. If you need a Bible reading plan and you need help on how to understand what you're reading, I will bend over backwards and so will Brother Lewis to help you. And here's one example out of a thousand. If you were to take the passage 2 Timothy 3.16 and you were to understand that the Bible is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness, you could ask yourselves questions every time you read a passage. How is this passage teaching and instructing me? What does this passage reveal to me about the Lord, myself, and the world? What is the Bible telling me that I should believe, think, and know? That, that's teaching. How does the Bible, or how does this passage reprove me or rebuke me? What sin does it reveal? What desires do I need to kill or put off? Where can I see my life not lining up with the passage? How does the Bible correct my thinking? In what ways does my mind need to be renewed or my thoughts challenged by the truths of this passage? So the Bible is awesome because it tells you this is the way you should be thinking. These are the things that you should know. Here's why or here's what you're not doing. Here's this this passage that you just read and it reveals to you that you're sinning because you're not doing it. And then it goes and it tells you, but here's how you do it. It helps you correct your sin to move forward. And then how does the passage train me for righteousness? What practical ways can I live this truth out that you see in the passage? That's four questions that you can ask yourself based off of four words found in one Bible verse. And I'll gladly email that out to everybody. I have it in in an email form. I've got many Bible reading programs that ask heart questions that get you deep, that require journaling, that require um, memorizing. There's just a hundred ways to skin the cat. I'm with him. The best Bible reading plan is the plan where you're reading the Bible. There is no magic answer. 
May we value God's word and may we live by it as believers so that we can be an example to our families and to one another. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us, Lord. Thank you for always providing for us um, in, in the things that we need. Thank you for this church, Lord, and for the um, the body that we have to celebrate you with, to praise you with, to glorify you with. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church, that we would read your word, that we would live by it. And by so doing, Lord, that we would... Um, be as Brother Lewis preached to us this morning, Lord, that we would be vessels of honor, that we, we, that we would be that fine china teacup instead of that waste container, Lord. And I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.